Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. Today we're going to talk about LAME, L-A-M-E, LAME ain't an MPEG-3 encoder, and LCMS, which is a library for color management. The, these are, this is the ideal, epi- this is, these are both my complete interests. Like, these are the two things that I am, they just, they, they, they intrigue me. So I am really excited to talk about them, and I'm gonna talk about them. The first one in the list, as I said, is LAME, and that was, the, originally, that was, uh, that stood for LAME ain't an MP3 encoder. And I say it stood for because the, if you go to lame.sourceforge.io, then the homepage for LAME, then it, it does speak about that um, acronym or whatever it is, initialism. No, I think it's an acronym, right? Um, in the past tense, it says it, it, it originally stood for, uh, so which implies to me that it, it eventually, I guess, dropped that meaning somehow, uh, and just is now, it's just called lame. Whatever the meaning of the name, lame is an encoder, and we'll talk about what that means, um, that produces a file that can maybe coincidentally be read. I mean, it's not coincidentally. I'm saying that, uh, you know, to be silly. It's, it, it is, but, but let's say legally binding or at the time this would have been significant, legally speaking, it coincidentally could be read by an MP3 decoder. Now, that's not to say that Lame was creating an MP3 file. No, no. It was just creating a file of data that, incidentally, could be decoded by an MP3 decoder or a player. Now, if that makes that file an MP3 file, hey, who are we to argue? But legally speaking, it wasn't an MP3 file. Okay, so I'm I'm saying this all very um, sort of tongue in cheek and and kind of like you know sort of implying that there's that we all know a big secret. That's because at the time when this the, when this was developed back in like 1998, I think it said on their their homepage, um, MP3 was still a hotbed of of potential um legal quagmire trouble like you could get into serious trouble over mp3 and not just for one reason one reason was that Fraunhofer, i think is what the the company that sort of developed a lot of the code that went into mp3 owned a bunch of patents that 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 gave them the legal right to produce this thing called MPEG layer 3. This is weird because the MPEG group is I mean it's a it's an open organization like it's just an organization it's it's a bunch of motion picture experts in a group that's literally what MPEG stands for and so it was weird that an MPEG sort of branded technology could also be a very very proprietary well maybe it wasn't weird but it is weird you know like I think it's weird that that could be the case. But the reason for that was because Fraunhofer or whatever the place was called, Thompson Fraunhofer or something like that, um, they were putting the money and the code into this into this thing. So yes, it was branded MPEG, but I mean, MPEG isn't like 
the Apache Foundation or, or the Mozilla Foundation or something where where you you go to this place with a bunch of code and they say, yeah, sure, we'll we'll work on it or we'll, we'll sponsor it or, or whatever. We'll lend support for it as long as it's open source. Impact doesn't care. So so th- these companies were contributing to this technology and Impact looked at it and said, yep, that works. Let's let's adopt that. And so it became the de facto standard for this for for audio really um for com- you know compressed audio that was small enough that could be sent over networks or fit onto discs that were relatively limited in space that was a big deal now that was one reason that you could get sued over an mp3 back in 1998 because this one company was developing the code had a bunch of patents and absolutely insisted that nobody else could write code that would produce meaningful output in this format. That was their argument, and boy did it stick for a while. Then the other issue around this time was a little thing called Napster, and if you're not of a certain vintage, then you don't know what Napster is. But at the time, people were really, really either excited about Napster or very, very terrified of Napster. And Napster was simply a a peer-to-peer, I think it was peer-to-peer network. Maybe it wasn't peer-to-peer. Maybe that was part part of the problem. But it was a download platform for MP3s, for, for, you know, MP3 files. And that was it it rose into prominence because mp3 was such a new thing and most people didn't know what an mp3 was at that time like that wasn't a thing that you could just say and have everyone understand that you meant oh you're talking about music except instead of on a physical disc it's just a file on a computer like they wouldn't understand that most people didn't have a concept of that and and in fact even if you put like a cd into a computer to play that cd on your computer which Again, back in the 90s, people didn't really do that that often. I mean, some people did. But, I mean, largely, people had, like, stereo units sitting on a shelf or on their dresser. They might have had, like, a boombox or something. They'd put the disc in, and they'd play it. So the idea of putting a disc into a computer and playing it over the little laptop speakers didn't always make a whole lot of sense to people. And and when you did that, you would need a special CD playing application. And that didn't really show you, like your file system, if you opened up that CD, if you even could, it wouldn't show you like the songs, the, the tracks as files. It lied to you and just said, or or it didn't lie to you. It, it told you that this is a disk of streamed data like you need something to to decode this data because the computer doesn't know what to do with it so a lot of people didn't even see music as like a a file you know because there there wasn't an icon you could point to well mp3 changed that it said no music could just be in a file and that file you can put up onto a internet place some place like napster and then other people could download it. And this was a free you know, zero dollar service. People would join Napster, I, I think, and just download music from it. And I'm pretty sure there was no fee associated with that originally. You know, originally it was just, hey, here's a cool, crazy idea. Let's everybody share music over the internet. And, and people had been doing that already in one form or another over Usenet and, and other other services similar to that, like file sharing um, 
things like you know FTP sites and things like that. So it wasn't it wasn't completely new, but what was new was that everyone seemed to be jumping on board this new MPEG-3 format. Like there were players for it. They were they were everywhere. And it wasn't like like there were other formats for for encoded music at the time, like real audio and I think Macromedia had something. You know, there there were lots of different formats back then, but everybody jumped on board with MPEG-3 for whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, I would love to hear more sort of, you know, people who maybe had more insight into the industry at that time. I would I would not mind hearing more about why MPEG-3 sort of caught on. I mean, maybe it was purely Napster. Maybe Napster adopting it and pushing it, maybe that was the, maybe that was the way that MPEG-3 became the household name. I don't know. Whatever the cause, whatever the reason, MP3 became very popular and so Lame had to be very, very careful about sort of their proximity to to MP3. Were they really producing MP3 files, or were they just producing binary files that, hey, look at that. If you point an MP3 player to this binary file, it happens to play music. What are the chances? Very, very dicey situation, and uh, it's kind of silly, especially looking back now. In 2017, the MP3 licensing uh, and and sort of the, the... the the patents and all those other things expired somehow i don't know how it expires so so relatively quickly um but they did they expired nobody renewed them i guess it, whatever um or maybe they weren't eligible i don't know i don't know the legal sort of process behind that but as of 2017 nobody cares anymore you can produce mp3s you can lay claim to mp3 it's just a, it's a technology for everyone i don't know for a fact that I don't know whether uh, Frau Frau Frauhofer. I should probably look up that name. Is it? I'm pretty sure it's Frauhofer. Um, I don't know whether they ever sort of um, Fraunhofer Fraunhofer F R A U N H O F E R Fraunhofer. Um, I, I don't know whether Fraunhofer ever said like, okay, the code, you know, the specification, like it's open now, it's open source. I don't know if they ever did that or how how it all kind of like got opened but i mean certainly personally i'm not really interested in an mp3 encoder actually full stop but um if i was going to use an mp3 encoder i would use lame uh, simply because it is open source but anyway that begs the question well how does lame work how does mp3 encoding actually work well i think in order for lame to really land to really like to really grasp what lame and other encoders do you, you kind of have to look at what compression normally does not do so this is like standard compression if you start with like text compression lame and other encoders they do use these kinds of tricks um to to some degree to whatever degree they're able to use them but it doesn't get the the most value for compression for for music but let's talk about it any anyway we'll we'll talk about what what normal compression looks like and we'll just take something really simple like text compression because that's that's a great starting point and you can kind of extrapolate from there how other things might leverage them so text compression if you just kind of think of an example you might you might just think like if i say i have the string hello world and i want to compress that i i've got i've only got 10 characters that i'm able to send over this uh telegram wire and hello world just takes up 
too many. H-E-L-L-O space W-O-R-L. Just barely, right? So I, I'm one letter too much. So how could I compress that? Well, one way would be to just drop the white space. Hello world. Let's just, let's not have a, a space between the two words. And the receiver would understand that hello world really could be expanded to hello world. Okay, well that that's a good start. What if I only had five characters I could send over this telegram wire? Well then, hmm, that's not going to work because H-E-L-L-O. I mean, well, I could. I guess that would be one way to do it, right? Hello. Instead of hello world, let's just send the word hello. That would work, right? I mean, that's not really maintaining the same data. So maybe instead we could say, well, what if we just said that in context of this message, and you can, dear listener, you should have your own answers to this question as well. That This isn't a, there's no right or wrong answer here. This is a thought exercise. So how would you compress the words hello world if you had to? And, and you might say things like, well, we could just mangle it. We could drop, maybe we, here's an idea. We could drop the vowels. H-L-L-W-R. Well, that wouldn't fit into the, um, into the five, five byte character limit but we could say or yeah um but we could say like let's go back up to 10 you know then then dropping the vowels would be would be pretty good we'd we'd save a lot of space by dropping those vowels we could get the whole message through and we could get the space if we wanted so that would that could work uh, another way we could just maybe the first letter of of H, uh, of just hello, H world, and, and in context, maybe people would understand that H world w- was a shorthand for hello world. It kind of depends on how, how we encode our thing, kind of depends on how our recipient is going to decode it, right? That's an important aspect of, of text compression, because really when you're compressing something, functionally you're encoding your data. It's no longer the complete data that you want to send, it is a representation of that data. And so you need to have confidence when you're sending it to a recipient that they understand how to decode the data. So if in context you know, well, if I send H world, my recipient would know in this context that what I was really trying to tell them was hello world, then that's a safe compression method to use. That That's, that's a good encoding method you could use to sort of send a a long message in a shorter amount of data. And certainly in a longer message, like if it's a if it's a message about maybe it's a whole blog article about computers and so you think to yourself well in this computer article I I'm using the word operating system a lot. I use it all throughout the the article and that's really adding to the the word count here and i use linux a lot and ram and hard drive all of these these terms they keep cropping up in every paragraph well what if for operating system i just abbreviated that as os in the file and then the recipient receiving that article knows that they need to do a find and replace on os to back to operating system Oh, but wait, sometimes I'm actually using the letters OS and I want those to stay OS. Okay, well, how about if I do a percent OS percent and, and the, the, the recipient will know to do a find for anything that says 
that, that's percent OS percent, and, and that gets expanded out to operating system. But if there's OS elsewhere without surround, not surrounded by percent signs, then that'll retain, that, that'll just be OS. That way I can have both. Okay, great. That's perfect. So that's compression and encoding. Compressing it because you've shortened it to OS. Encoding because you've differentiated between your compressed string and the times that you actually use OS, meaning OS. And you could do the same thing for Linux. You could do like a percent %l%. Percent. Now you've shortened all of those occurrences of Linux down from linux five character strings down to three character strings. And you do that enough and you, you those savings add up, right? I mean, you do it once. Okay, great. You've you've saved two characters. Big deal. But I mean, you do that across an article that mentions it 10 times and now you've, suddenly you've you've saved 20 characters. And that is a big deal. And so that's that's text compression really, really sort of just intuitively, right? But in reality, that's, it doesn't quite work that way because again, like you're not going to actually tell your recipient, hey, just open up this text file and swap out all the occurrences. Obviously, the compression algorithm, the thing that's doing the compression for you needs to know that itself. And so compression algorithms typically create sort of a little dictionary file or really a Huffman tree telling itself what it has done to swap out the the strings of characters that appear frequently and it doesn't have to be a word right it could just it could find common common strings of characters everywhere in the file uh so in english s i o n t i o n the 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 suffix for shun that would be that would work i know t i o n oh yeah of course it would mean shun um or or sound like shun uh so compression um interpretation those kinds of you know t i o n that's a good suffix to uh to to squash the word the t h e i mean that's hugely common in english so i mean that's a great candidate right there and then you benefit from not only t h e the but also there t h e r e you would you would be squashing that quite a bit thereafter therefore all of these other terms that might appear other um you know they might appear in the the the, the file you you're you're compressing those and there's a way there's something called a Huffman tree, which is um, this algorithm devised by, I don't know, Huffman, um, a doctor of computer science probably. And it's, um, it is a way of encoding how to get to specific places along a, a, a map. It's a kind of a map. So for instance, let's say you had... Hmm. Void int main. That's a pretty common, like for programming, that that's pretty common. Void int main. It it covers a lot of different languages. C, C++, Java, and uh, C sharp, I think. Void int main, let's say. Let's get a way for us to, to sort of encode that really quickly. So if you start with uh, void as the entry point, then that would be the, 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 the root node of this tree, void. So when we see the word void, we're, we're kind of sure that we kind of can guess what's going to come after it. It's either going to be void, it's either going to be int, like an integer, or let's say in some languages this would be available string. Void int or void string. One of those two. Okay, well, if it's int, then we're pretty sure that a lot of the times, like in a lot of these files, there's going to be a main after that. Now, it could be something else. It could be maybe there's something else really common, like maybe my, my, some 
some languages that's kind of a convention that people use. Okay, so void and then down to int and then down to main. That's a very likely path. You could always branch off at any point. Void int or void string. Which way are you going to go? And then once you get down to int, which way are you going to go? Main or are you going to go to my? Well, you don't know, but the 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 algorithm, the compression program can figure that out as it analyzes the data that you've asked it to compress. And so it can build this tree as it's analyzing the data, this Huffman tree, and assign sort of directions to each path that you might go down. So if you're at void, then you know you have two choices in this example, and we'll call it zero and one. From void to int, we'll call that the path of zero. And from void to string, we'll call that 1. And then from int to main, we'll call that 0, 0. And from int to my, we'll call that 0, 1. So, in order to encode the phrase vo void int main, you'd have uh, 0, 0, 0. Because you took a left at void, and then a left at int. Whereas if you went if you wanted to say, if you wanted to encode void int my, then you'd have void to int, that's zero, and then from int to my, that's zero, one. So now you've got zero, zero, one. Now, if you were taking a right-hand turn at void, and you didn't want to int at all, then let's say you're going from void to string, that's one, and then from string to my string, uh, that would be one, one. So void string my string would be one, one, one encoded. You can make a Huffman tree for, well, really anything. I mean, whether it, whether it makes sense or not is, is it kind of dependent upon the data. You can sort of imagine that for any kind of, any kind of reoccurring thing where you hit a certain point and you think, I've seen this before. There's about a 50-50 chance that it's either going to be foo or bar. And if I go right on my tree toward one, then, then I'll, I'll call it one. And if I go left, I'll call it zero. And you don't have to use zero and one. Obviously, you could, you could use anything, but zero and one is kind of the obvious computing binary choice. Further down the tree you go, the more integers you add to your little encoding map. And suddenly you've got this zero 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 one zero one zero one 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 zero zero one, and you know exactly where to go as long as you have the tree set out in front of you. It's a really fascinating, like a, it's a map of data encoded simple by by simple choices of either a zero or a one. So they're always binary choices, and they're going to different reasonably expected destinations. And this assumes kind of like the need for compression. You would not, for instance, do this Huffman tree for data that just didn't have a lot of repetition. Uh, and you see that sometimes in in things that you compress with gzip, bzip, or xz, or zip, or whatever you're using. Sometimes you do find a file that's, I mean, and it's usually like a JPEG or an MP3 file. Sometimes you'll find a file where you'll apply compression to it, and then you'll compare the compressed data to the non-compressed data, and it's basically the same. I mean, heck, you could, it's even feasible that you could find compressed data that is g larger than the non-compressed data because you've added essentially overhead of compression to a thing that cannot be compressed. You would only want to use this kind of compression if it paid for itself, as it were. And it doesn't always, it just kind of depends. That was in place when MP3 and LAME were developed. That was already, that existed, and, and it has some use in binary 
data, like you you might find the the reoccurrence of bytes in binary data, and you might be able to say, well, when putting this data into a file, drop all of these, all of the sequences that contain this part, and then when you uncompress it, add that back in, you know, so I mean, that it might have some use, not all that useful. I mean, it, it's useful for lossless compression, to be sure. But MP3 and lame and, and these kind of lossy formats, they go much farther than that. They needed a different method because they need the, the music files really, really small. And I've talked in the past, in past episodes, about the efficacy of FLAC versus, for instance, WAVE. It's a night and day difference, but it's another night and day difference between FLAC and something like AUG or MP3, lame. The way that MP3 pioneered, I guess, compressing music was based on something called the psychoacoustics of, of the music. And I realize that that sounds like some kind of pseudoscience, you know, like using psychoacoustics to lose weight or something like that. It's not. It isn't that. It's a term that essentially boils down to what you think you hear or what you consciously hear. And this refers to the the idea that the human brain and, and to some degree human physiognomy has has the ability to to certainly hear for instance music but music is a multi-layered thing and sometimes at, at you know at some points in some music some sounds are are dominating other sounds so in a rock song for instance you might hear uh, the drum beat come in pretty loud and strong at the opener as, as an opening, you know, sort of introduction couple of bars. But then the, the guitars come in, and they start doing their power chords. And all of a sudden, the, mu- the, the drums aren't quite as clear anymore. They kind of, they, they kind of take a back seat, in a way, to these, these electric guitars. You can still hear the drums, you just don't hear them in isolation. You're not hearing them on their own. And your brain kind of starts to um, de- prioritize the drums or or maybe not maybe you're a drummer and you're listening to that sound to the the drums more than anything but that doesn't change the fact that you just literally cannot hear the drums as clearly because they're being saturated by electric guitar frequencies and so you just don't hear the the drums as much okay so that's that's the concept of psychoacoustic um or psychoacoustics so what mp3 what what the mp3 algorithm takes takes advantage of is the idea that you that you can you know in 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 a in an equalizer a rack unit equalizer or a digital version thereof um you can take frequencies of that blob of sound and it's important to realize that sound waves aren't like um you know layers in a gimp image where you can have like literally you can just I, you know, this is the drop shadow and this is the the thing above the drop shadow you can turn one off and just see the drop shadow or you can turn the drop shadow off and just see the thing above it completely independent streams of data that's not what music when delivered to to listeners that's not how music comes to you it is 
is all one great big representation of sound. So you can't just turn off the drums or turn off the, the guitars. I mean, you can if you've recorded it that way and preserved the different tracks, a multi-track recording, but usually, and certainly within an MP3, that's not what's happened. Everything's been flattened. Everything, all the data is mixed together. And so the drums exist and the guitars exist and yes you could you can use equalizers to to narrow in on frequencies that that contain mostly the guitars or mostly the drums but there's bleed and and even when you're filtering down oh, I just want to hear the drums and you can do it with like really clever um EQ and 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 narrowing frequencies you can you can get pretty precise but you'll still hear bleed from other instruments so anyway you got this blob of music and what mp3 took advantage of was that it could it could find it, it could look at different frequencies just like you would with an eq unit and it could determine what was actually sort of dominant at any given time so if there is a part in a song that's just the drums then mp3 is going to give all the frequencies to those drums the drums can have basically whatever it wants not everything i mean because there are there are frequencies way way up there and way way down there that you just don't hear that but they're there and you could probably argue to some extent that somebody can hear it or 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 that at least having it there is a nice to have but you know what you don't need it so first of all cut off the high the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows just get rid of those we don't need them that's got data it essentially has empty data right we don't need to be transmitting that when we send someone a music file so we cut it off and that's gone that's lossy compression it has decided that those frequencies do not matter this isn't text compression like where okay well we'll just say hey there's empty space let's sample a frame of it and then we'll duplicate it oh you know no it's gone it's erased it's dead it's gone it doesn't come back it doesn't get restored in the decoding process it is gone okay so then mp3 is listening for the guitars to come in now the guitars come in and now the drums are they're still there but they're not the the prominent instrument in a psychoacoustic sense. And so MP3 takes the frequencies where the drums are are are, are mostly hanging out and it 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 starts to drop samples. It drops information from those drums. Generally not drastically. I mean it's doing it in a tasteful way ideally. Um but it's it's dropping stuff. It's it's reducing the sample the the, the fidelity of of, for instance, those drums, and you'll never notice it because it's a, you know it's it's like going from I don't know 48 kilohertz to let's call it 33 kilohertz. No one will ever notice. Like it's basically the same unless you're listening really closely, but you're not listening that closely. And anyway, it's just to those frequencies. The, the guitars are still really good sounding. They sound great, and that's what your brain, the psycho part of the acoustic, that's what your brain is listening to. It's it's focusing on the guitars right now. And if you're a drummer, yeah, sure, you're focusing on the beat, but you're not hearing, you don't need to hear like every single uh, snare hitting the, 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 the skin of the drum, right? I mean, let's just, let's just approximate that. What you really want to do is be able to, you just want to be able to tap your foot and move your hand so that you're emulating the snare and the bass, the kick, and, and you're fine. It's fine. So that's what MP3 did. It, it, it identified the places where there's too much going on in that, in that frequency range for anyone to really 
tell the difference. So let's just start dropping data from there and see if anyone notices. And people didn't notice. Now, I use the drums and the guitar example specifically because one of the common complaints of MP3 for a very long time was that if you were going to hear MP3 compression, like if you were going to hear a song and identify that, oh, oh, that's an MP3, isn't it? That's not a that's not flack or a wave or, or whatever. That's that's a compressed song. It was in the symbols. That was a, a dead giveaway for a very, very long time. Like if you would hear people complaining about MP3s, it was very frequently in symbol crashes. Because symbol crashes, I, I think symbol crashes because of the 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 breadth of that sound, I, I think that they would you, you could frequently hear that data had been removed because it just didn't sound like a cymbal crash. You know, it, it lacked the resonance, the the sort of the, the full body of the crash. You'd hear like just the, just sort of the treble part of the crash, you know? You'd, you'd, you'd hear that it's ringing, but you wouldn't hear that sort of bass in the crash. Or maybe the other way around, I don't know. And I think it was sort of tr the treble trying to emulate, yeah, there's the, there's the crash, there's the high-pitched crash, but then you expect that bass echo and you just don't get it. So, that was a dead giveaway of MP3 for a long time, or for low-quality MP3s, at least. Um, and that was just an artifact of the MP3 encoding process. That was, that was a side effect. Now, careful listeners could also hear, like, you would, you, you can go back and listen to some, some MP3s probably. You'll hear, you'll hear problems. You'll hear, you know, places in, in the bass, uh, lines that, that start to get pretty muddy as they say like it just you you start to lose distinction and and the reason that you're losing distinction is because a lot of times the distinction of a thing happens in spikes at certain frequencies you know you'll hear the slap of a of of, of a literal bass string well that slap gets cut out by mp3 uh, frequently because that's a that's a that's data in a frequency that we just decided was not that important right now and so yeah the the bass lines still there it just sounds more like uh, well less like a, a bass and more like a line it's just it's the right notes, but you don't hear the the syncopation of it. Um, you, you'd hear that a lot of times in, I mean, even piano music, you know, where where you've got things happening on both ends of the of the of the keyboard, and and MP3, the algorithm is trying to figure out, like, you know, try to to determine what what again psychoacoustically was the most important part, and you start to hear the the decorative parts sort of uh suffer for it and that's how lame works i didn't realize i'd been talking about about this for 40 minutes already i mean time really flies I, I love this topic anyway um that's how lame works and mp3s work and and the way that lame literally works is you type in lame and then the 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 song that you want to compress now that song i believe needs to be a wave file i think is correct uh so you know, you're, you're kind of limited as your input source. Um, but luckily, lame is a library. So the, the command is nice to have, but it's not your only opportunity to use lame. You may have used lame only through another application yourself. Who knows? Uh, for instance, Audacity. You can you can tie it into Audacity and export things from Audacity as MP3. You could use it through FFmpeg. FFmpeg has access to liblame, as long as it was compiled into FFmpeg, but it, it generally is. Uh, Socks, I think, has it now? I think as of 2017, I think Socks rolled that into um, 
into its its ability. Uh, and then, or maybe before that, there was some application out there that didn't have lame, and I always I remember always thinking it's so weird that it doesn't have lame. I think it was socks. Um, and other other applications have lame just tied to them for whatever reason. I mean, heck, K3B, uh, ABCDE, the A better CD encoder, um, a lot of applications that specialize in converting media have access to liblame because that provides that algorithm, that compression algorithm, to taking sound from one source, analyzing it, figuring out what needs to be crystal clear and what could just kind of be cheated a little bit, uh, and making that happen. Okay, so that's everything about lame, really. Now it's time for coffee. We'll come back. We'll talk about color space. I've got coffee. This is still bomber. Nothing to report, really. But you know what? I ran out of McKinsey over the weekend, McKinsey coffee. And then, so I started making, like when I wanted an espresso, I started just making it with bomber. And nothing against bomber at all. I mean, I'm drinking it all day, every day now. So it's it's great. I love it. It's flight coffee. It's good. But it just, it for whatever reason, and I don't know why it happened this weekend, but for whatever reason, I, I, I think I finally, decades into my life, I finally figured out really sort of, I, I, I understand why there are dark roasts and why there are light roasts. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I just, I, lately I have really separated the dark roast from the light roast. You know, I, the dark roast goes into the espresso maker, the light roast goes into the percolator, and that's just how it's been for the past probably three or four years. That's what I've been doing almost subconsciously. It's It just happens to be what I've been doing. And it's, it's primarily because the dark roasts I, I've been buying have been packaged as coffees for an espresso maker. They've been a very, very fine grind, and and so they end up in my espresso maker because that's just kind of how they've been marketed to me and or, or prepared for me, really. Whereas the light roast, they come to me as beans, and I just grind them up in my little coffee grinder, and that's not a super fine grind, so it just it feels like it's more appropriate for the percolator based on the sizes of the little holes in the, the tin, you know, basket. So having... Having the dark roast in that espresso maker for the past four years has, I, I guess, has just kind of reinforced what everyone else already knew. I mean, like the world. I mean, this is why dark roasts exist, right? Is is for these really rich, delicious espressos. And these lighter roasts, I mean, they're great. They're fun. They're they're easy. They're light. They're, they're great for just your afternoon, well, your morning, your afternoon, your evening, your all-day coffee, whereas the espresso is the espresso. So yeah, it's, it's, I, I really, I, I feel like I've gained bizarrely a new appreciation for like those really rich, almost abrasively dark roasts. Like I get it now. I understand why they're, why they exist and, and why they're so darn good as espressos. I don't know. I mean, share your thoughts. If you, if you like a dark roast, just just out of the, you know, whatever, your drip coffee maker or your your percolator, whatever you use at home, uh, your your plunger, whatever, let me know. I'd be curious as to what other people's thoughts about dark roasts versus light roasts are. Okay, second half of the show really is going to be about color space, uh, specifically because the next thing in the list, the next library in the list is the L... 
CMS package, which is the little CMS package, which is the little CMS engine, which uh, I guess must stand for color management system, maybe? I don't know. I couldn't find out what CMS stood for, and I, I felt like it didn't occur to me to wonder until I started recording. Um, and I just now looked it up, and I can't find it. For some reason, it just always, for to me, that was always like, oh yeah, it's little color something space. You know, you just kind of, you just gloss over it. Just sort of, oh yeah, you know, the the color space thing. CMS. I don't know what it stands for. Color management space? I, I don't know. So, Little CMS is a, an open source uh, library for color space management. And in order to understand what that means and why that's important, you have to understand what a color space is. Color space can be confusing until you really, really start to think about it, but more importantly, color, color itself. So, Let's just start out again, just sort of with some thought exercises here. So first of all, a definition. Color space defines what color values are available w uh, on a certain device. And it is, a color space is always color, uh, is always device specific. A color space is talking about a device. So a device is going to only have access to some number of colors. Now that number of colors a long, long time ago used to be, what? eight or 16 or 24 or something, but it has grown exponentially since then. We've got, we're, we talk in colors, you know, color depth of like, you know, millions now, but believe it or not, and this is almost difficult to, to sort of grasp, but believe it or not, that is not all the color in the world. The world has uh, just so many colors, which seems suspect, suspect right? Because we don't, I mean, how many colors can you name? I can name like five. Red, blue, green, purple, yellow, cyan, that's six. White and black, there's seven and eight. So I, I can name eight colors. But color is really a, a matter of perception, which again, just like psychoacoustics, it, it sounds like this is some kind of pseudo uh, pseudoscience. But but if I say red, then most people, probably you, dear listener, could you can probably generally picture sort of a generic sort of red. Like we could all probably picture basically the same thing, and then someone could show us all a card of of red, and we'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's that's basically what I was imagining. Yeah, sure. But then if I say like burgundy or maroon or crimson, then now now what are you picturing? Now what kind of red do you have in your head? Um, and if I said rose, what would you think about then? And I think to some people, rose, for instance, would be a very kind of uh, soft uh, pink color. Of course, not not that there's you know pink. What what is pink? Well, it's you know it's pastel. It's a pastel red. Um, and rose is kind of a, sh a variation on that with a little bit more red than 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 pastel if if you if you know what i mean so it it just it's very difficult to sort of to sort of just come up with that color from nothing right to picture that from nothing there's no absolute value that we're able to dial into our brains to make us think of it exactly the same color when we say burgundy or maroon or crimson or rose or even really red like we we might each have a different interpretation of of exactly what red is or we might not even notice red like maybe red to you isn't really a color sort of that is distinct of, to itself maybe red is a lot like um green to you or maybe red is a lot like just 
everything else, like red and orange. Like, what's the difference, really? Isn't that kind of the same color? It it is it is perceptual. Like it it really is. Like it's 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 not these aren't absolute values. And in fact, many of these values only exist because we have names for them. If you think about it, like again, starting to sound like pseudoscience, but I mean linguistics. Uh, it's kind of a big deal, and if you don't have a name for a color, then you might point at it and find the closest approximation. I mean, I've definitely been shown a shade of what I think is blue, and someone says, that's not blue, that's teal. What What the heck is teal? Well, it's it's a color. It's It's this color right here. That's teal. Well, that's news to me. It looked blue. Maybe cyan on a good day. By the way, what is cyan? I don't know. It's just a color that I learned about once I started learning about, um, I think probably either film or digital color. It seems to be a, a digital color thing, cyan. Um, what's another good one? Turquoise. Turquoise is also, is always a fun one because to me, turquoise is, again, it's kind of a, it's either a blue or a green. It kind of depends on who has produced that turquoise. And, and then it just depends whether, whether they put more blue into it or more green into it. Or at least that's what I think. Someone else might think, no, that's definitely green. Like that is not a blue. That is a green. I think it's a blue. Well, no, it is a green. So there, there, you, you can definitely have arguments about color. Because there are no absolute colors. I mean, there are, you know, just some sort of universal simplification. We could say that there are distinct colors. But when you start to get into the, the details, you start to realize that, eh, not not necessarily. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are colorometers and things like that where, where there, there are literal rates of, uh, you know, there, certain things are being reflected off of a surface to produce a certain effect. You can measure that sort of thing, but that doesn't necessarily tell you whether something is, again, whether it's red or more of a burgundy or, or whatever. So colors are, are very often defined in relation to one another. Is something yellow or is it goldenrod? Or is that really just orange? Um, and out in the real world, we have so many colors that we, on an everyday basis, we, we just... We just are fine with the generalities, right? You don't, you don't look at one plant and call it, I don't know, green, and then another plant and call it eh, more of a turquoise. We just say they're green because that's the simple way of saying it. Or, or indeed, to, to be more specific, you don't look at a, a leaf of a single plant and realize that actually there are, there, there's this, this one part that's, that's, so so light that it's almost white but it's i guess still green and then it sort of there's a gradation and during that gradation you experience you know these other colors these these i don't know the, the, these nameless colors that's what i'm trying to say there's no word for these things there's there is that much variation in color input for our eyeballs that we just cannot name everything uniquely it it doesn't it doesn't make sense for us to do that at some point it's just a, it's not worth the effort the mental effort to differentiate between su uh, subtle shades of color and so computers take a sort of a, a psycho visual if you will and i don't know if that's a term i'm just riffing off of psychoacoustic uh, they they take a sort of a perceptual approach to color out of necessity for the same reasons really that are that are that not not our brains but the 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 linguistic part of our brains i guess 
for the same reason. Like you just can't assign that much data to the all the potential ways that light presents itself to your eyeballs. Now, this is easier to picture if you cut it down to a really small color space. So let's think of um the web color space, or what was once considered the web, web safe colors is what they were called. And it was a set of like 256 swatches, color swatches, that, that I guess the internet was, was, felt confident in being able to display to other people. I don't know how, I don't know when this was a thing or, or why, how long it was a thing, but there, there is a thing. Like 256 colors, if you put that on the internet, then all the people with even the old equipment will probably be able to see your image within a certain color. So, um, 256 colors, let's say. And with that kind of color space, which, I mean, 256 is quite large, actually. I mean, to, to you know, to count. Um, you can kind of think of some interesting ways to, to, to represent colors. Like, how would you budget your colors if you had 256 swatches to choose? I mean, you might, as the web space or the web safe color space does, you might assign, for instance, the primary colors are red, 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 blue, yellow. Are those the primary colors? I don't know. I'm, I'm digital. I don't know real life colors. Um, red, 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 blue. Yeah. Red, blue, yellow. Those are primary, right? Cause you can't, you can create green. No, you can, you can, yeah, you can create green from blue and yellow and red and blue purple and blue and yellow green again are there only five colors in the world maybe i was wrong five colors no i don't know i don't know how color in the analog world works so anyway you got primary colors like you you would probably assign one of those to each color swatch to to a color swatch and then you'd probably have like secondary colors like green purple uh and like cyan and then you would have maybe well black and white certainly and then you might think well i could fill another row of like 10 just with a spectrum of reds like from a deep deep red to a less saturated red so down to sort of what we might call a pink uh, all the way down to almost a white just so so light pink that it's it, it borders on white and then we could do the same thing with green blue and you might just go through like all your primary and secondary colors then uh, and just give a spectrum of those and then you might fill it fill up with some some gray scale some grays as well and, and so on so you you can kind of imagine how you might budget and then you might you know you might say okay well okay now i've got all my primary spectrum and my black and white spectrum but i've still got like 210 left you know swatches to fill what can i do well now you might think well what if i what if i take this red and add a little bit of blue into it not not so much that I get to what I was calling purple before, but something more like a burgundy. And what if I took this green and added a little bit of extra yellow in it? Not 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 too much, but just enough to uh, to produce sort of a, a, a uh, like a military green, like whatever color that is, plague green. I don't know. Um, and then orange red I'll, I'll add some yellow to that until i get a little bit of orange and, and you know so you you start mixing things up and then again you do the spectrum you do from from very very saturated to not so saturated and so on the levels of luma uh to chroma and so on so you you do you develop a color space for yourself that essentially says these are the valid colors if you if you use these colors then when you send it to someone they'll be able to see basically what you have sent them in the like in the in with the right colors like that that picture of um a red rose it will look like a red flower with 
with variations of of red down to pink and and maybe in, e, darker into even black like in the shadow areas uh the, the stem will be green and again it'll kind of it'll have uh lighter areas around the the the, the edges of the leaf where the sun is 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 hitting the 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 edge of the leaf um and the the little rib the little spine of the leaf will have a little bit of white, but then in the darker areas, it'll go down to a very, very dark green and into black and so on. But will it be, like, exactly the same color? And that's the question. Like, will it be that red and that green? And if you think about, like, um, like if you had, let's say you became a fan of OpenSUSE overnight. You became a fan of OpenSUSE. It's a good distro. You might as well. Um... You love Seuss, so you decide you want your laptop to be Seuss green from now on. Now, so you go out and buy some paint, maybe? I don't know. I don't know if that's good for your laptop. But maybe maybe a sticker, I don't know. You, you custom make a sticker, and you, 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 you get some green vinyl that you're going to stick onto your laptop, and you stick it on there. It's the shape of a chameleon. It's got Open Seuss written on it. You think, that's my Open Seuss sticker. So you put that on there. But then you, you go to the website of OpenSUSE and, and you look at your sticker and you realize that's not the OpenSUSE green. I got it a little, I got it close, but that's not the exact same green. And so suddenly it doesn't feel real anymore. It doesn't feel like the official green. And, and you could do that with anything, you know, like what's the official fedora blue, if there is one. I, I don't actually know that there is, but what what's the, what's the right shade of red for the Debian logo or, you know, for the eye, the dot on the eye and the, the swirl is often red like what what's what is that red exactly that red how could i reproduce that red exactly i don't want to just say oh you know red i want it to be the debian red how do i get that that's the question and and you might think well it's so so simple you just do hash ff0000 i mean that's obviously the right value for a, a true red okay well great except what does FF0000 look like on someone else's device? Does it when it when it when those pixels are shining through the 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 backlit screen of of this device, does that look like the same red over as it did over on this other device that someone created the thing in the first place? That's the that's the the part that that's the tricky part. That's the the thing that's really difficult to capture. Now, back in, to, to use a music analogy again, back in the old days of digital music, of digital sound, there was a thing, there still is a thing, but it was, it was new then called MIDI, M-I-D-I, musical interf, musical interface, music, M-I-D-I, anyway, MIDI, everyone knows MIDI. There's an, I, I should know what that stands for, but I, I can never remember what acronyms stand for. Um, it's something like Musical Instrument Digital Interface. That's what it stands for, actually. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so anyway, MIDI. Digital synthesizers were using it, and eventually um, these companies, Yamaha and, and other companies, started coming out, Roland, uh, started coming out with sound banks, uh, just d little boxes that just had a bunch of synthesizer sounds in them, which you could trigger with MIDI. There was no keyboard on these things. It was just, it was a little electronic box, often with some LED lights on the front, you know, the buttons. And, and the idea was that certain instruments in that little box would be programmed 
to respond to MIDI signals over a certain channel. Now, MIDI is a single cable, pretty much. You, you plug, or maybe two, uh, if you're doing a through, but I mean, you, you plug it in from your keyboard to the sound bank, and, and that's your MIDI cable. So what's a channel? Well, a channel is, is just a little, little bit of code that you put in front of, in front of every note that tells the the thing that you're talking to hey this is meant for for this instrument this is on channel 1 so so whatever whatever channel you're playing on channel 1 you, you put that instrument on 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 this on this note so there there was this you know people were composing music for these for for these sounds and and it would it would be great and then they would share that music file just the midi file so just the data just the pulses they would send that MIDI, uh, actually, you know what, I said channel, I meant bank. But anyway, um, they would send the MIDI file to someone else and say, hey, give a listen to my composition, see what you think. Or maybe they would go out and buy a new synth, and then they would pl- they would plug their keyboard into that, and they would start the MIDI file playing, and suddenly it would sound completely different. Because everything that they had encoded as um, strings instruments would, would suddenly be playing as brass and their brass was suddenly being played as a piano and their piano was now playing as a drum, uh, completely not what they wanted. And it would be really frustrating because that meant that every time that you composed music, if you swapped out what synth you were using to play your composition, you'd have to reprogram everything and, and reassign which MIDI bank was, was meant for what. And to solve that problem, and I don't know if that actually ever happened, but the, the the problem that that you know that would have been a problem it may have been a problem but they developed a thing to solve that problem called general midi and general midi was a set of 128 banks if i recall correctly that went from 0 to 127 or 1 to 128 uh and it it was it said okay well for this one it's going to be on, on this bank you're going to play your put your piano instrument the user can change it if they want but by default we're just going to say that everything on this at this in this bank is going to be a piano and then the next one is going to be uh the strings and then uh, the solo string and then the the cello and then we'll switch over to the clarinet and then the flute and you know and so on and and it would just you, there was a, a set of generic definitions for each bank from 1 to 128 or 0 to 128 whatever it was um and and that way if you bought you went out and bought a yamaha plugged your your keyboard into it and started playing your midi file that you you'd recorded for yourself over that synth then it might it was a it was a piano it was a synth sound it was a string synth it was a brass synth whatever and then you you swapped that yamaha out for a roland and you played it and suddenly it's it's the same thing the piano a string a brass they're, they're different you know they're the roland interpretation of what those things sound like when they're synthesized but it's basically the same that's the goal or that would be the effect rather of of co- digital color without color spaces you would get basically the same thing it would be a different interpretation of that thing but it would be it would be the same thing your your red rose would still be a red rose your green stem would still be the green stem your blue sky would still be the blue sky 
they would just be that device's interpretation of that blue sky. So someone within the digital imaging world said, we need to do better than that. We need ways to to assure people who are creating a digital image on one device that when they send it to another device, that other person is going to see more or less, or actually, like, ideally, exactly what you sent them. And this is really important for like artists because that is large in visual art i mean that that's key that is that is one of the main things you are doing is you are considering color and if you think about movies that you've seen you may have seen um a movie with a highly stylized look to it like if you've ever seen the movie 300 i think it was with the the men in their little speedos with their spears and they were hitting each other they, they do it in practical i mean it's it's almost pure sepia tone if i recall correctly i mean it's just it is embarrassingly orange like it's just really really saturated orange and and that's an intentional choice like that's what they wanted for that movie i think it was orange maybe it wasn't but you may have seen other movies like um you know movies set in a in a prison and there's a sort of a green tone to everything. Uh, movies set in an ice an ice world, and, and it's very blue, and it lo- it looks like it feels cold. Something set in a desert might look like it feels hot because it's very red or yellow, and sort of it just feels and it looks warm, and so it it makes you almost feel a little bit warm, and that's very effective. And and whether it's effective for everyone or not doesn't matter. Some people probably see it and don't even notice it or their eyes acclimate to it very acclimate to it very quickly but for the artist creating that thing that's part of what they want you to see now this becomes even more important when in you know modern cinema where one uh, effects house is working on uh, scene one, uh, the, the first half of scene one, and another effects house is working on the second half of scene one, and then you're going to take those two halves of the scene and stick them together to get, uh, you know, for the end production so that you have a complete scene one. They're worked on by two different places. You cannot have the movie cutting from one, you know, play, 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 and then suddenly the color change shifts noticeably it it needs to all look the same like exactly the same as if though it was shot in the same place as if though the effects were applied in the same place it should all it shouldn't look like any any that it has ever changed hands it should look like it was all within the same camera at the same time happening in the same moment so color space is is absolutely vital in film and obviously or maybe not obviously but I am speaking from experience here. This is this is what I used to do um, for a living. Is in part dealing with with color spaces. So it's 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 a really really vital kind kind of component of digital imagery. But the problem the problem is that there's no way, as I've said, color is perceptual. There is no way to tell a stupid computer screen to display this shade of red. You could say um, FF0000, but that doesn't mean anything because what is FF? How much is how much is 100% red? How much is, well, 0% if anything is pretty easy to, to 
to trigger. But uh, but how? What is like it's a hundred percent red? Great, but that just means it's going to be that shade of red that you're able to produce on that device. You could say things like, oh, we want eighty percent red, twenty percent green, ten percent blue. That that should get the the shade of of the thing that I want. Well, will it though? Because again. That device has its own uh, luminosity. It's got its own, it's, it's, you know, it, it it is of a certain age. It is within a certain setting. How can you guarantee that that's going to look exactly like what I sent you from my device? Well, there is essentially no way to guarantee that. The manufacturer or the user using a color color meter, um, there was a great one called Color Hug that was completely open source, uh, hardware and software. Uh, it's kind of hard to get now, but I, I used to have one, loved it. Um, you can you can analyze the device and and determine what its capabilities are of, of levels of output, and then ca- calibrate it so that a certain percent of red actually means a certain percent of red. A certain percent of blue means actually a percent of that blue, and, and, and actually get sort of a known quantity. And that's what you need, right, for color management, really, are known quantities. So what you typically find in high end professional gear, digital imaging gear, is that the manufacturer has done their due diligence and they've measured the output of their device, the device that they're producing, and they create a color profile of that device. The device that you're sending your image to, ideally, also has a color profile from their, from its manufacturer or better yet from this user with a with a colorometer um and and so now you've got two known quantities and you can then adapt your color space so that they match and a color space would just be a definition of what color values should basically get loaded into that device and we're talking millions of colors but the importance of a color space is that again you you can't have them all you cannot have all of the color in your color space because the world is a big place and computers are smaller so you have to limit what your potential color spectrum is and each color space is optimizing for a certain look and feel of 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 the digital imaging. General, you know, we we have there are a lot out there. the 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 most popular ones tend to be the most generic ones. They've got a good amount of reds and greens and blues, and maybe maybe they they play around more in the amber because that's that's a nice warm tone that a lot of people like and tend to associate with a sort of a calming, um, gentle sort of feel. A lot of people have complained in the past about sort of digital displays seeming kind of too blue, and so they want it to feel a little bit more amber, a little bit, little bit warmer. So maybe some color spaces optimize that. It's also convenient because human skin tone is kind of within that amber spectrum. So, so, and, and a lot of, you know, we humans love looking at other humans. So, so that's a lot of digital imaging is, is of humans. So give them a lot of amber. So maybe there's a little bit of a preference towards that, but then maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe for your digital project, maybe you don't need so much amber. Maybe, 
maybe you're the one making the movie about the the ice planet. And yeah, you need some amber, but I mean, really, you need all the subtleties of everything that blue and green can offer. So maybe you want your color space to sort of drop, you know, kind of, kind of be lower on the reds and, and bigger on the greens and the blues. This is why color space would exist. So a color space defines all the possible colors available to your image, and a device's color profile tells that device how to get there, how to produce those colors. Now, for that to happen, for the device's profile and the color, the, the, the intent to match up, there often needs to be something called a lookup table, an LUT, a LUT. A lookup table is pre-calculated necessities, pre-calculated tr um, transform, transformation, to get a color from from one place to to its perceptual to to its you know to the perceptual color of intent of intention so you've got your color as it has been encoded in the file being mindful of the color space it exists in but when you send it to another device you're you're necessarily you're essentially on a different color space uh, unless you've you know, like synchronized those devices and matched their color spaces and so on but generally you're you're in a different color space now and so something needs to convert from the color space that it was created in over to how it's being presented while still maintaining the intended perception of of what those colors feel like and all of this stuff the the color space the lookup tables the color profile all of that stuff needs something to manage it with and and that would be lcms in this case lcms is one of many different libraries available uh to 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 manage and to convert and to you know transform the colors from from one color space to another it's it's an important thing that you need to think about if you're writing digital app uh, di digital imaging applications and um that's that's what lcms seeks to make possible and and seeks to make easy and if you go to the the website um of littlecms.com you'll find a bunch of information like really really useful information really cool uh data on how to use little cms on qt6 for instance uh the the way that little cms um interacts with web browsers and babel and and all kinds of things. So yeah, definitely check that out. Um, there's a lot of interesting documentation about lookup tables as well on NVIDIA documentations on the developers.nvidia.com, which, you know, normally I don't know how useful that is for an open source developer, but I mean, the data is still really, really interesting and useful. So uh, if you're interested in this sort of thing, check that out. There have been all kinds of white papers and studies published about this sort of thing. Um, it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a huge deal. Like it, it really is. Like the idea of being able to transfer perceptual, you know, something that is in part defined by our, our, the proteins in our eyes, in part by the linguistic background we have of, of how we sort of interpret color and, and name colors, you know, and whether we even recognize one color as different from another or just another shade of that color uh, and then also being represented by lights and and technology and and things that we've built from you know electrodes and diodes and things it's a fascinating fascinating topic 
So check those resources out. I'll have links to those in the show notes. I think that's it for this episode. As you can tell, it's a topic I'm very, very interested in. Talked way too much about it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open and get some coffee.